Breaking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Future Man. As percussionist and member of the Grammy Award winning jazz quartet Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, Roy Future Man Wooten loves walking on the high wire of musical experimentation. And if you're familiar with the music of the Flecktones, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Future Man, Victor Wooten, who is also Roy's brother, Bela Fleck, and Jeff Coffin have been creating music from the inside out for 20 years, and the music they create is like nothing else out there. Much more than a musician and composer, Future Man is also an inventor. He plays a modified MIDI based synthax dubbed a drumatar that triggers digital percussion modules while performing. The sounds, textures, time signatures, and overall rhythms of his musical creations border on genius. His amazing musical knowledge on theory, composition, and rhythm, not to mention his vast knowledge of music history, will leave you speechless. Prepare to learn a little more about music, because the future has arrived. Inside Music Cast welcomes Future Man. Future, thanks for joining us today. All right, man, and you thank you for having me. Hey, no right. problem. Hey, I want to start off by going way back. You, you come from such a, a musically rich family. I mean, you're one of five brothers, and you all performed together in, I think it was the Wooten Brothers Band back in the early 70s. And tell me a little about growing up in such a musically talented family. Absolutely. Well, it was really great. You know, um, basically, you know, we just kept playing, man. We, loved, we all loved music. And um, as we would get better and better, every Christmas we'd get better instruments. So... Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, it's like our parents really stood behind us, and yeah. uh, and they allowed us to make a lot of noise. Right. <laughs> we were fortunate in that they really supported us, and as we, you know, kept playing around with music, we just kept getting better and better and better. And so they would take us to different battle of the bands, and then pretty soon we were playing clubs and stuff at a very young age. Cool. Where, like, even Vic was too young. A lot of some of us were too young to leave the stage because there was alcohol being served. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so... Yeah, so uh, we sort of we started our band in Hawaii many many years ago when Victor was uh, only two. Really? Uh, a lot of people know Victor Wooten, the bass player. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. He was two years old when he started playing with us. And, right. Um, before he could really even play the bass, uh, my oldest brother, uh, the oldest brother named Reggie, uh-huh. who they call the teacher. Yep. He started. Uh, he did, he didn't really start teaching them play. We just got him a Mickey Mouse guitar, and he would just play along with us, just coming <laughs> and not really doing anything. Just being in there, you know, right. <laughs> and groove and stuff. And then after, by the time he turned three, Reggie started really showing him where you put your fingers and how you make the notes be in the right place and stuff. That's so cool. even way back then, Vic wanted to use his thumb. Reggie had to force him to use his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> were, your, uh, were your parents uh, musicians? Um, no, not really. really? My, my dad can sing. Yeah, he's, he's passed away about... Uh, Christmases ago now, hmm, but bad. my dad can sing, mm-hmm. and uh, my mom uh, is uh, trying to learn the piano. She loves, she wants to learn the piano, yeah. but uh, they they weren't. Really, it wasn't really a musical push for us. It was just something that we really love to do, and they supported it. Wow, so, yeah, so all the brothers, we played as a, a family, and, you know, my parents would get off work, my dad would load up the trailer, and, you know, he'd drive and be bodyguard, and my mom would help with the <laughs> business and make sure everything, you know, from the business standpoint... Uh, was right, and um, and then you know you, a lot of people know Victor Wooten, the bass player. Sure, yeah, then definitely. there's uh, Joseph Wooten, the keyboard player. He's and a lot of people see him out if you see the Steve Miller band. Oh, sure, he's, sure. Uh, out with Steve Miller. Oh, uh, cool. When Steve Miller goes on the road. 
And then there's Rudy Wooten, the saxophone player. Then there's myself, future mm-hmm. man, Roy Wooten. Yeah. Um, and then there's Reggie Wooten, the teacher. Right. You know, when you were young, did, did you always just, just have a knack or a love of percussion and rhythm, or, or did you play some other instruments too? Well, you know, I always did have a knack for the percussion and stuff, uh, but in high school I played trumpet. Okay. And I'm actually glad I did because in playing trumpet, it really uh, helped me to understand, um, you know, the treble clef music theory. Right. And, you know, just pitch, pitch bass instrument like that. Mm-hmm. And so that really helped me with theory and everything. And I think that, you know, that has uh, enabled me to soar so far into composition like I am now because we had a really good uh, theory teacher in high school. That's neat. Went to high school in uh, Denby High in Virginia. And okay. uh, Mr. Webb was the band director's name, man. And he just, uh, the theory was really solid. I mean, his theory held all the way through college. We sort of had it in high school. Oh, interesting. So you studied in but, college too, right? now. Did a couple of years of college, mm-hmm. uh, but not the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, we went in, uh, we were in Norfolk State at the time, Norfolk right. State University or Norfolk State College. And there was an innovative program that they had that I think would, it was just a great concept. But for whatever reason, uh, the school didn't really get hard behind it. I think it, it may have threatened in the classical department. Maybe the, the classical department was fragile or right. they felt like they would lose their marching band or something. But it was really cool, man. It was half a jazz uh, major, your major uh, band was the jazz band, really, and it was half uh, mass communication. Mm-hmm. So you know you were learning how to use the camera, how to set the lights in the studio, how to <laughs> say action, you know, <laughs> how to prepare <laughs> to say action, you know. And it was just, it was so right on. It was called uh, music and media. That's cool. I mean, that is just such a good major. But anyway, you know, in those days growing up like that when we were kids, the thing was because our parents let us just make so much noise, man. We had a curfew at, uh, I think our curfew was 9 o'clock. We had to stop. You know, people would call the police a lot on us. (laughs) But they they were like, you know, we we could play up until 9, and 9 was the cutoff. So we made a lot of noise. And so what happened was all the musicians would come by our house you know, and so it was like a who's who of musicians, you know, for jazz fans, you know, there's James Genus on bass that would come over. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Billy Drummond, jazz drummer, a lot of people know Oh, yeah, Billy yeah. Uh, I said, we did some work at uh, uh, Bush Gardens as well, and my brother was in a show with Blair Underwood, famous uh-huh. actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't really come through the garage, but, you know, he was just in that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> stuff happened. But uh, Carter Beaufort would come by, um, Carter Beaufort, the drummer with Dave Matthews. Yeah. So I've known Carter for a long time, man. And uh, Carter, you know, Carter, uh, Carter, there's actually a cool Carter story. Carter said uh, he used to come by during the summertime, and I'd be uh, shedding, you know, just working on drums. And, and we'd finish practicing all day, and then me and Billy Drummond would get together and listen to records all through the night. You know, and Billy was always, never tell you who it is, man. I said, Billy, man, who is that, man? You make you guess, you know. Downbeat, you know, style, right. you know. Exactly. Uh, but uh, but Carter would come in and sit in on, on, on those shedding sessions with us, and he said that uh, seeing our dedication to the drums like that made him focus on the drums and not football. He he ended up he had a scholarship to go to school for football, and ended up turning it down to focus on drums. Really? He said he saw us working on it so hard, so dedicated. It made him focus on it. So I think the world is glad about that. You know, you oh, hear yeah. all that Dave Matthews music. You know, <laughs> it wouldn't be the same without Carter Bowles back right. there laying it down. Exactly. Well, you spoke a second ago about uh, getting together and listening to records at night, and I was going to ask you, what did you grow up listening to, and what, what kind of influences you, did you have? 
Wow, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, like, uh, we play a lot of jazz and stuff now, but we grew up, uh, me and my brothers grew up playing dance music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from the Rolling Stones to the Temptations to, you know, uh, Motown Sound, Jackson 5, Stevie Wonder. Sure. You know, the Animals. You know, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. You know, we played all that stuff. <laughs> that was a time when radio was kind of like the iPod is now, where people just can switch styles and don't have to stay in one genre if they don't want to. Right, and, right. You know, we played all that stuff. So we grew up moving the dance floor, but we just kept advancing as musicians. And as you keep advancing, you know, you're going to get into jazz stuff. Sure. And so from there, you know, we started learning about Miles Davis. There you go. Uh, Coltrane, right. Art Tatum, Charlie mm-hmm. Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, mm-hmm. you know, all these guys. And then uh, and then in our time, the jazz broke into, well, the musicians started using the backbeat with the jazz. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were doing naturally. So Herbie Hancock came out, you know, dropping Headhunter. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, I, and I remember it was such a controversy with Herbie using the backbeat. It was not a big deal to us, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, but then the fusion came out, you know, Mahabishnu Orchestra, sure. Chick Corea, right, right. White, all these drummers are super drummers, Weather Report. Right. And uh, so from the dance floor, we kind of went into all that advanced music as well, the old jazz and the stuff that was breaking, the fusion stuff, you mm-hmm. know, with these super drummers like Billy Cobham. Yeah. Super drummers, you know, Lenny White, one of the funkiest fusion drummers. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Alex Acuna playing with Weather Report. There you know, go. Omar Hakim played with Weather Report. Sure. So, so I just, you know, always loved Alex Acuna's beautiful strokes with the sticks, man. Just beautiful, man. He's amazing. So, you know, so we grew up like that. So we, you know, see, a lot of jazz musicians, I think they come up and they, they haven't really connected to the dance floor. Mm-hmm. But jazz originally was a dance music. True. And so we came up, you know, with the dance floor making people dance. And so when we came to jazz, it just was an extension of that. Sure. Yeah. So you you were sort of baptized into. I mean, you were you mentioned Creedence and the Stones and all of a sudden yeah, you know, fusion. Like, see, that was cool, man. Because like bands like Creedence Clearwater, man, you wake up right. Yeah. I mean, if if it, radio was like it was now, you know, you could just only maybe hear rap all day long. Exactly. You know right. I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You would be hearing like James Brown. You're right. You know. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you hear. Yeah, yeah. And they, <laughs> you, you're right. I think water revival, man. It's like wow. <laughs> yeah. you know? you're right. The radio mix back then in those years, it was it was a lot more eclectic. You got a little bit of yeah. everything, and uh, you know, and then and then, then you hear like Dave Brubeck. Yeah, you're right. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's yeah, some and takes. it was cool. So we grew up and we played all that stuff. Yep. Because it was on the radio, we played it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, so what initially brought you guys? Uh, you know, in, in the process of of growing up, uh, what, what was it that brought you to Nashville in the eighties? Wow. Well, we, you know, we had done a lot of gigging and stuff, and uh, uh-huh. it started. Um, we had done some work in the entertainment um, shows at Bush Gardens, and we met an engineer named Kurt Story. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Story was from Nashville. He was called the Fiddling Bear, playing hmm. fiddle in one of the country shows. Mm-hmm. And Kurt just always kept saying, "Man, you guys got to come to Nashville. Man, you guys play so much music. It's a it's a whole music city. Y'all got to come to Nashville." So, Vic was the first one. He had some time off mm-hmm. in between um, some performances, you know, on the road with different people and stuff. And um, he got a chance to visit Nashville. So when he visited Nashville, Kurt, the engineer, that asked him to come, yeah. started introducing him to all the you know kind of major you know. Really super good musicians. You right. know? So uh-huh. he was meeting Mark O'Connor, 
Gary Douglas. Uh, and he his first gig, he started gigging with Jonell Mosser. Wow. Yeah, he started gigging right away, but he Jeez. met Bela and all these people. And the way he met Bela was uh, Kurt just called up Bela while they were in the studio and said, Bela, listen to this. <laughs> and he took the <laughs> phone up to Victor's bass. And Vic started playing, and back then, you know, Vic was doing all these thumb techniques, but it was it was really new. Like people had never seen that before. Yeah, right. right. And so when Beta said, when he heard it, man, it sounded like a bass banjo the way he was thumping on that thing. So they got <laughs> together, and it was right around the time Beta was looking to put together a jazz group. Uh huh. Because he got offered to do uh, the Lonesome Pine special uh, hour featuring his music. That's right. Yeah, from at PBS. End, he, yeah, at the end he wanted to do uh, this jazz group, and it was mm -hmm. like at that time it was kind of a. You know, a very eclectic move because everybody was saying, "Well, you know, you should just the banjo should just play country music, yeah. you know, or or bluegrass." And 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 I remember when we first talked on the phone, I said, "Well, I didn't totally agree with that because during Louis Armstrong's time, the banjo was the guitar, basically." Mm -hmm. And so, if anything, being able to bring the banjo back to the mainstream would be like full circle, bringing it back to where it was during Louis Louis Armstrong's sure. time. Because, yeah. you know, after after that Dixieland time, the guitar came out, and so the, the banjo died because the guitar took over. Right. Yeah. So bringing the banjo back into the guitar world, would, I said, man, that's full circle, because he was getting a lot of advice to just kind of stick to bluegrass, stick to what it's traditionally known for now. Sure. So Victor hooked up with Bella, and, and they hit it off and all that, and, yeah, and, so he, and, and so he was hooked up with you. When he met Victor, he had almost the whole group of that was that you know of as the Fleptones. Right, right, he right. He already met Howard Levy, who was the original sure. right. uh, Fleptone that played harmonica and piano, mm -hmm. and uh, he found the bass player when he met with Victor. So they started listening to drummers, because he knew he, Bela wanted to play jazz, and he didn't think he was going to get that jazz feel out of Nashville like he was trying to do. So he thought he was going to have to go back to New York, where he grew up. You know, he went to the School of Arts, where Omar Hakim and oh, sure. all these Lewis Nash and people like that went to school. So right. He thought he was going to have to get them to guest on a record or something. Mm -hmm. So they'd be listening to records, man. Famous people, unfamous people, people around town. And he would ask Vic what he thought. Right. Mm -hmm. Vic would always say, yeah, man, it sounds really good, but... You know, you really need to check out what my brother's doing. Yeah. Uh, so that was me. You know what I mean? I was back <laughs> in Virginia working on the, my first drum guitar. Right, right, right. You know, learning to play the drums with the fingers. Just, you know, I was in the, I was experimenting, man, really pushing the boundaries. Sure. And uh, so I was in Virginia Beach, and I was already playing in a band. Now, when I first started this experiment, I thought it was just going to be a very personal experiment, like in my garage. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm just going to learn how to how the rudiments work, because I really like rudiments. I, I like that Buddy Rich. Right, exactly, sure, yeah. So I was learning to run that in my fingers, you know, approaching like this Art Tatum concept, mm -hmm. you know. That was the idea. And I just thought it was going to be a very, very personal thing, and then sometime down the road, it might catch on. People were like, you know, I would get a chance to put something out. But very, very quickly, I could see that uh, if I was going to put anything out, I was gonna, it was going to be pretty personal. Like, the companies didn't understand what I was doing. Yeah. So I was just fleshing it out myself, right? And so Baylor calls, you know, in that void. I was really surprised anybody was calling. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, how, how do you even know what I'm doing? You, you shouldn't even know about this, you know? Yeah. So he called, and he said that he had talked to Vic, and Vic told him, I said, okay, okay. So we just rapped, man. We just talked about, I remember we talked about playing in seven. Mm -hmm. And even then, I was formulating my own harmonic and rhythmic ideas. And, wow. I, and at that time, I was uh, explaining, I was saying, yeah, I really like seven, and I feel like the, the complete way when you play these quote-unquote odd times is when you're able to superimpose the time over whatever time you're in. I follow you, so, yeah. 
you know, like you can superimpose a major or minor scale wherever you are, you should be able to superimpose that time. Yeah. So if you're in 4-4, four, four, you should really know what, how that 7 fits over that four. Exactly. And yeah. there's a whole theory behind that. So yeah, we sure. talked about that, you know. And uh, I guess, you know, it sounded like I was pretty confident. I knew what I was talking about or something. And so based off of our conversation, he asked me to play drums Yeah. Uh, with this group, you know. Just based off our conversation, he said he didn't know how I played, but he said based off what Vic kept telling me, he said the guy must be able to do something. Sure. <laughs> if you can play, if you can play in seven, uh, this guy's got to have some chops somewhere, you know. Yeah, he said he must be able to do something. So, so, so he started talking about the instrument, and I told him, well, you know, I'm experimenting with this instrument, and it's really cool. But I told him, man, I don't know if it'll work because I've never flown with it. Yeah. And at that time, I was still patching cables. You know, because I'm wiring stuff between the neck and the right-hand side, I'm, yeah. I'm still, like, patching to see what voices fit the best together. Yeah, sure. And so it's really loose experiment. It's not complete yet. And I just told Baylor, man, I just don't know if it's going to work because I know sometimes the airports get really violent with your luggage, man. I, I said, it's so <laughs> delicate. If they get violent or, or harsh with sure. it, it's going to come out that case and just be dead, and I'm just going to be stuck. You oh know? So God. I told him just up front, it might not work, right? <laughs> he, said, well, he said, well, let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. If, we, if it doesn't work or if it works a little bit, we'll use it for a gimmick. That's yeah. what he said. And so, but, but the, the long story short, we got, got off the plane, everything worked, man, and the rest is history, man. We played like maybe six hours just playing, mm-hmm. and uh, we recorded all them early playing, and then uh, it went so well, Baylor said it freed him up to play in ways that he wasn't able to play before. So right. it was cool. a good chemistry right from the start, yeah. and shortly yeah. after that came the first Blacktones record, because he said, no one's ever recorded like this, let's see if we can record, Yeah, you know? So we did that, and then shortly after that, we did a few dates. And then shortly after that, Baylor was quitting New Grass Revival to do this full-time. It was, a, it was a very controversial move, you know, but he was looking to expand his wings. Yeah. But I just remember there was a lot of people, you know, where I was just doing this little experiment. We were having good, a good time. Then all of a sudden, it got like, whoa, Baylor's quitting his group, you know. Some fans are not too happy. Every time we play, man, the Flectones... People will come in and looking like, man, this better be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jeff, Jeff Coffin, we told you he was a recent guest of ours, and it seems as, that uh, that his sense of musical experimentation, you know, when he was talking to us, that there's a, apparently there's an, an ingredient of every flectone that has an affinity of experimenting, of openness to new things. I mean, is that something that every one of you guys, uh, I mean, yeah, you well, guys see, get, this is, this let's try thing. this? And, you know, early on, we talk about that. Like, we were like, children of another uh-huh. millennium or something. You know right. what I mean? Because sure, sure. it's like the first uh, iteration of the Flectones, every single member was out on a limb. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like Beta's literally reinventing a way to play all the notes on the banjo. Because most time banjos, you know, kind of hooked up with block chords and sure. chording. And, you know, you kind of got your chordal structures that you, you base your whole thing off. Mm-hmm. Baylor wants to play all the scales and get all the notes like Charlie Parker and Chick Corea. Wow. He said all the notes got to be on here. So he figured <laughs> out a way, you know what I mean, to yeah, play yeah. <laughs> the banjo in a way that it hadn't been played before. Right. He's out there on a the limb. <laughs> okay, go to Victor Wooten. He's on the bass. He's making up thump techniques that you're hearing now pretty much on every record. Pretty yeah. much anybody that's thumping, you're going to hear you're right. some of that stuff that Vic's been working out. You sure. know what I mean? It's yeah. like it was new. He's obviously on the limb playing the bass all wrong, man. <laughs> and then uh, you got Howard Levy, literally. 
reinventing the way you play the blues harp. Definitely. He's playing the blues Definitely. harp like a chromatic harp. He, he's no, amazing. He's playing, it's not even on the harp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he figured out how to overblow to get falsetto notes to get all the in-between notes. So he can take one harp and play in every key. My I mean, God. that's literally... That's amazing. He's out there on a limb, man. And yeah. so here I am, totally looking at the drums a whole different way. You know what I mean? That's, that's like lightning striking four times. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's In like, the same that's space. Kindred spirits right there. That's very kindred spirits. And so that yeah. we realized that something was happening. Yeah. Right. And um, uh, Bela, I think, was surprised at the success. But again, I think, you know, maybe from mine and Vic's side, we grew up on the dance floor. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. like, it's about taking your ideas and communicating to people. Yeah, yeah, you know, even if right. it's an odd idea, you can play it in a way that can carry people along for the journey. Sure. And so I think we're playing the music in that spirit. Yeah. A lot of times, like a Bela has an odd tuning or something, we'll say, well, wow, this sounds like uh, this. You know, like Sinister Minister. Right. Bela, yeah, uh, sure. originally heard it kind of flamenco Spanish style. Right. Boom, right. boom, boom, dun, dun, dun. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that brought it right down to the dance floor. And so a lot of times, you know, it's not all funk groups, but we're just taking it. Yeah. And just really, you know, making it home. It's like like one of one of the tunes that won a Grammy was almost twelve. Yeah. And it's basically a Victor Wooten tune that we all contribute on. But it's like 11, but we make it sound really even. Amazing. Quick, quick, slow, quick, quick. You know? That's amazing, yeah. And you just make it sound really simple, like you can almost pop your fingers to it. Exactly. Really hiding the complexity. Hey, talking about that first album, I mean, when you, when the the album which Sinister Minister ministers on that was in 1990 so but when you guys went to the studio and actually recorded that at that time you didn't really have any plans of really having a band right i mean it was sort of like a just let's try this type of project right well yeah it was all experimental and we knew that you know because the tv show went so well yeah and Baylor could play so well when we played together you know it just opened him up to pull out all these tunes he had stored in the closet you know all this stuff he can come out and dust it out and we do something with it yeah. You know, it turned out to be something really cool. So that just went so well. You know, he tried to do some dates in between uh, the new grass and in between his schedule. That just went so well. And it was just going so well. It was just like, well, wow, we got to let's try to record this. Because I remember Baylor saying he didn't know if we could record it. Because, you know, the drums, all the I'm sitting up in the control room, man, with the drums, playing the drums. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything was just so innovative. It was just a matter of, like, experiment. Let's Let's see what happens, you know. And so we recorded, man. The stuff sounded good. Yeah. And so from there, that just went on to the next thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, he shopped it around, you know. All the jazz labels passed on it. Ooh. And uh, because Warner Brothers right here in Nashville, they just had so much respect, right. mm -hmm. you know, for, for just the musicianship. It's sure. like whatever you want to do is going to be a master series. So <laughs> we'll take it. Here's, you know, here's uh, some money to do it and that kind of thing. Cool. And so the Flectones came out on Warner Brothers, the original thing. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, and so yeah, so that spirit that spirit of improvisation was a vine that runs through the flectones. So when you get to Jeff, you see somewhat of a continuation of that, you know, eclectic, you know, love for all kinds sure. of music and really openness. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think it was a couple of years ago, or early 2007, you guys won a, a Grammy for The Hidden Land. Yeah. How was the collaboration of penning the music? I mean, it was the concept. I mean, the, how do you guys yeah. work together when it comes down to composing? 
see, a lot of times it's very organic. A lot of things aren't even written out. Really? They're, they're motifs and tunes that people have under their fingers <laughs> that they bring to the band, and they sh- everybody shows it to you. You know, like Baylor will come and he'll show it to you. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily on paper. If it goes to paper, a lot of times it'll be maybe Jeff or sometimes Howard will write it after the fact. Yeah. But it's a very organic, you know, and we spend a lot of hours making it very organic, you know, practicing, you know, running right. stuff again and, right, again right. and finding it. And a lot of times Baylor will play and you don't even know where the one is. And so, you know, <laughs> you just, you know, everybody will play it where they think it is and it ends up turning it into something, you know. But it's a very organic process like that. Yeah. It's not necessarily coming with a pen. It's just coming, you know, um, as themes that someone has developed within themselves. Yeah. And they bring it to the band for completion. Sure. Yeah. So that's how it kind of was like, like almost 12. That was big. Basically, that was a Victor Wooten thing. Interesting. And, you know, by the time we finished, you know, we each had a little uh, a little piece of the tune. And uh, actually an amazing tune. That, that one won a Grammy. That's right. Almost 12. I forget what it was for. Best instrumental something. And it was right. like, that was... That was really uh, surprising. You, know? <laughs> you guys have won like four four Grammys throughout your career. Is that right? Yeah, uh-huh, four. So that's, mm-hmm. that's impressive. Yeah, that's very impressive. Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about, I mean, there's something about uh, writing music, but writing music with an interesting concept and a twist, palindromes, like UFO tofu, you know, right. that that's a whole new, talk about the, the freaky side of composing, um, right. you know, work with us a little bit, uh, explain a little bit how how those concepts, you know, come out to, to being, for instance, you know, with, yeah. that's yeah, a... Yeah, you know, yeah, we get out there on the road and we meet people like there's a guy out in Seattle, he's either in Seattle, Portland, named uh, artist named Baby Gramps. Okay, and he has this whole. You can probably Google Baby Gramps and find him. He's got this whole. He's got books of palindromes, man, and just whole phrases. Really, do geese see God? That's a palindrome. Really, wow. <laughs> you know, forwards and backwards. Do geese see God? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so Baby Gramps just got all of these, man. So you know, we play, and sometimes Baby Gramps might open the show or something. And yeah. so Howard was into puzzles and stuff. He got that box type mind anyway, you know. And so the idea just came out, why don't we uh, make a tune, you know, make a song, you yeah. know, as a palindrome where sure. it goes forwards and backwards. Right? <laughs> 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 That's like sewing it. grew from there, you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> That's like dr- driving a car and putting it, shifting it in reverse and drive yeah, again and back man, to it. <laughs> so, man, you get the UFO so cool, man. It's like, first of all, we had this real crazy melody. <laughs> And then I think Howard, it was hard enough just to learn the melody. And then I think Howard might have came up with the idea, let's make it a palindrome. Amazing. Basically, let's take this hard melody and play it backwards into itself. (laughs) I can't can't tell you how many times I've listened to that song, and I just, you know, usually usually somewhere in the middle when when you guys are into it, I just get lost. I I, I, I know, man. See, we've done that with symphonies, man. A lot of times we don't have enough time to rehearse with symphonies to get that down. But we did a thing with the Boston Symphony where they accompanied us. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. How did they go down? It was actually good, man. Uh, what's his name? I forget the the, uh, the maestro's name, but he was on top of it. And, really? You know, we really got through it. It was cool. <laughs> that's Very cool. That's cool. But yeah, that, I think that was a Howard Levyism, and uh, I remember that being <laughs> one of the few things I've had to sit down and maybe I had to pull the pen out to sort of like write a couple of these phrases. Because it, it was so long, it, it just it took time for it to sink in. Most of the time, stuff would just sink in organically. I like right. when it does that. Right. Where I, I just I'm playing it from my subconscious. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that one, I had to. I, I, we, it was just so long. I had to wrap my conscious thing around that to get through the backward side of it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, speaking of Howard Levy, uh, I, I you know he did a lot of work with Kenny Loggins back in the nineties. Yeah, <clears throat> went on yeah, tour with him, and, and I, I one of those video DVDs. Oh, that's right, he is, and uh, and I remember when Kenny Loggins introduced him. He he introduced him as the man with two tongues. <laughs> oh, okay. So he introduced him as the man with two brains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he'll be playing the harmonica in one hand and piano on the other. Oh yeah, he, he's amazing. So a lot of times, if, depending on what harp he picks up, he's transposing for the harp and playing in C on the piano. Oh my goodness, <laughs> wow. he's insane. Yeah, um, and so it's nice, man, because you know after um, uh, after Howard ended up uh, getting off the road, you know. Um, you know, we played with a bunch of different people, beautiful people like uh, Paul McCandless. Paul McCandless, yeah. yeah. You know, Paul McCandless, Paul Hansen, uh-huh. John Clark on the French horn. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then Jeff came along, and we, Jeff just sort of like really settled in the groove. Yep. And became this permanent fourth voice, you know. Yeah. And he just has, you know, such a great spirit, great love for music, a great love for world music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just a great energy about his whole, you know, his whole... Uh, love of music and the love of the saxophone. He just brings a, a, a great energy and I, I'd say a great worth. Right. You know, one thing that I noticed about Jeff is, and we talked about this, is he, he was so passionate about getting to schools and to, into teaching kids about not only theory but the approach of it. Do you guys all also uh, take time to do that too? Do you personally uh, get into schools and to... Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've actually gone into schools and done, you know, workshops. It's mm-hmm. a good workshop with Dom Famulero uh, at a school downtown. Yeah. You know, for, it was a summer summer uh, program for, for kids downtown. Um, and, and and Dom Famulero came down. And also I did a drum camp with Dom Famulero and a bunch of different drummers came down. Cool, right. He did a beautiful educational uh, drum thing, drums and uh, drums, arts and evolution. Mm-hmm. Dom Famulero is like a, uh, like a Sabian symbol spokesperson almost. He's like a Sabian ambassador. Oh, yeah. Okay. Great spirit. And uh, so it was an honor for me to, to share. And, uh, I like to do these educational things when Don comes because he just gets you fired up. Yeah. And he just has that super good attitude. So, yeah, so we're always going. And then Vic, I always participate, you know, if I'm in town when Victor uh, does these camps, these base and nature camps, because we get together and have them play with the rhythm section. And at, at one point in the camp, everybody gets up to play. And right. so it, it'll be a marathon night where maybe me and another drummer will play with all the people out of there. Yeah. So it's great to give back, you know, and even now with the Black Mozart Ensemble, these are these young violinists and stuff, you know, from different colleges around here in Nashville, and they're all good teachers. I think they teach privately, and they're just all really good with this. You're sticking with the, the Flectones here for just a second. I've had the good fortune of catching probably well over a dozen Flectone shows throughout the years, and, and without a doubt, you guys you guys always deliver. It's always a killer show. And, and, you know, during the 90s, you guys built, you know, such a great following, and, and outside of the Grateful Dead, they're probably... I don't know, there probably was another band that toured as much as the Flectones. And did, right, yeah, did, we really hit it, man. Did, did that wear on you a lot, or was, did you just simply adapt, and, and that was life at the time? Hmm. Well, it, it became a big focus of the life, but, but the wear and tear wasn't so bad, because uh, uh, as we went on, we were on a tour bus, and that's what yeah. makes it a lot easier. Sure. You know, cause you get, your tour bus is like a rolling home, and you don't have to drive. So then in the early days of the Flectones, we were driving, Right, right. So that is different than getting on tour bus. So as it went on, even though we did more, maybe as we went on, we had a tour bus and were a- and was able to relax on the road. That's cool. Yeah. 
It so I've always liked to travel, so it's not so much of a wear and tear. Uh, so anyway, after that, the wear and tear a lot of times is going you know, people trying to keep relationships together. Right. <laughs> when you're out to sea that long. Yeah. Because we do 200 plus dates. Oh, yeah. You're not doing that quite as often now, right? Oh, no. you no, backed no, way no, off, no, haven't you? No, now it's down, yeah. yeah. Um, we're off for the next couple of years, hiatus, uh, but, um, but we finished a Christmas uh, album that's going to come out. Oh, yeah? That's cool. Um, that's this cool. Christmas season, and we're going to be doing some dates um, November through December. Okay. Which, uh, if people find out about these dates, uh, you should make haste because we're really on a um, hiatus. You know, we're we're really off all of this year and off all the next year. Wow. And we're going to see, you know, what's happening after that. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, so we've got a bunch of dates in November, man. Check it out. Go online. And try not to miss it. That's, yeah, that's good to go. That's good to know. You know, outside of the Flectones, you know, you guys have uh, quite a few projects of your own in, in, for you, including the, uh, the Evolution de la Music, which uh, is a collection of work that I guess it blends classical and jazz together. And, and was this project an inspiration of the French composer Maurice Ravel? See, uh, I would say, yeah. I, yeah, in a way. It, and it's this whole, if you get a book called New World Symphony. Right, mm-hmm. right. It talks about Europe's fascination with the art and culture of the West. Okay. And, you know, like now, a lot of times if you're writing classical music, you know, people are trying to sound like Beethoven. You know, you're just trying to sound like Europe is the standard. Right. Right? But Europe had it down, so they were, like, fascinated by what was mm-hmm. happening in America, the New World. Man, they got this new thing. They got the spirituals, Dvorak. It's just, his whole life is changed by the Negro spirituals. Right. You know, he's like, man, this is your national music, man. And he said that during racism time, and that was not what he was supposed to say. But he felt so hard. He said not only that, he was going to create the new literature. He said, this is not only your national music, this is the future of classical music. Right. He said these melodies and stuff. So he's the reason why you'd see, like, Paul Robinson and these people dressed up in tuxedos singing slave songs. Uh-huh. Like uh, Henry Burley, who was his assistant, that he'd get to just sing these musical spirituals over and over. Mm-hmm. He said Dvorak would just ask him to sing it again. He said, did it really go like that? But he, he said it was Dvorak that instructed us that this music was not just for our churches, but it was to be sung next to the arias of Schumann. You know Interesting. I mean? Right. Next to, the, you know, next to the powerful music of Beethoven, next to the highest music. And it was Dvorak who... Um, Believed it so strong, he wanted to create the literature for it. And huh. he didn't create all the literature for it. He wrote the New World Symphony, where you could hear the spirituals and stuff. Right, right. But, um, but he got a circle around him of 14 African-American composers. And from that circle was the person, I think it was Henry Burley, who Duke Ellington called his encyclopedia. Hmm. You got the first teacher of Gershwin out of that circle. Interesting. You got the, you got the uh, first teacher of Copeland, Aaron Copeland. right. So when we look out of that first ripple from Dvorak, we see very American composers. Ellington, that's, that's nothing but American. You know what I mean? Sure, right, right. Sure, right. The, maybe the first classical composer to really arrive and be respected on the same level as the European composers, you mm-hmm. know? And then Gershwin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. He's mm-hmm. so, this is the ripple coming out from uh, Dvorak. Interesting. So I say all that to say, so now it's like people are recognizing Dvorak said the Negro spirituals, but Copeland... By the time it got to Copeland, we recognized that the, the folk songs were the songs of America. And so Copeland using Tis a Gift to be simple, Tis a Gift right, to be right. free. Mm-hmm. You know, a good old folk song in there. Appalachian Spring, yeah. Yeah, Appalachian Spring. That's direct ripple coming from, du- from Dvorak. Yeah. Not just the Negro spirituals, it's the folk songs. And all the European composers would get into the folk 
musicians of the day. So now, you said Maurice Ravel. That comes on to Ravel and New World Symphonies. It talks about how Ravel and them coming after Dvorak, they weren't so fascinated. So it wasn't, well, I can't even say that. It's not so much the Negro spirituals. Well, not only the Negro spirituals, but it was the jazz vernacular that mm-hmm. was happening. Okay, right. So jazz is the music that's called America's classical art form. And what's happening in jazz? Ravel said, man, I utilize the language of jazz in my violin sonata for piano and violin. He says, you, you're, your composers and people here look down on it, but I'm utilizing the language. And he says, I can only do it as a Frenchman. He's just waiting for the Americans to realize what they got on their own doorstep. <laughs> mm-hmm. You got it. Right. He said, like, see, see, what's happening is he's saying not only is jazz an advanced music with advanced harmony, but it's also a popular music. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. You know what I mean, people are dead. It's popular. It's not just for the museum. That's how classical music used to be. It wasn't just, it was the popular music of the day. Right. So here we have, what's happening with jazz is that <clears throat> classical music, the Mozart, during Beethoven's time, Bach, Handel, Haydn, St. George, who's the Black Mozart Project, the thing during that time is they were all improvising. You know what I mean? They all improvise, and night after night, they do something different. It's like Miles. Right. right. It's slightly different. Uh-huh. Okay? So they're so great. They write, they, you know, they, they would improvise their cadenzas, but eventually they write them down. And so everything's written down, so coming after them, all, you, you couldn't make up anything better. You just read what they wrote, and you didn't have to improvise anymore. Yeah. So now you see in classical music that that, live art form of improvisation right. has pretty much gone dormant in classical music. And they said it would take, it would take the advent of uh, a couple of hundred years for that spirit to rise up again in American jazz. Interesting. All wow. the European composers were highly attuned to this, man. You get Stravinsky, his, uh, the soldier piece that he wrote, yeah. right. the jazz chord of the Rite of Spring. He said it's a jazz chord, right? Huh. But, but the soldier piece, he wrote that he hadn't even heard the music jazz. That's, it's just hard for me to imagine someone <laughs> yeah. not hearing jazz before. Right. He'd never even heard the music, man. He just saw a jazz score. And looking at the score, he could see it was a different music. Right. That influenced him to use the, uh, the saxophones and stuff and the soldier's piece that he did. Interesting. So, so what happens is all these European composers, when they would come to America, man, the first thing they're doing is going to Harlem. Mm-hmm. They're going to Harlem, man. You got Rachmaninoff. <laughs> In Harlem, man, listening to Art Tatum. Yeah. Just, uh, just imagine that scene in a movie. Exactly, yeah. right. Art Tatum's playing and Rock Mononoff is in it. <laughs> wow. Right? And he said, Rock Mononoff came up to Tatum. He said, I can match your speed, but your rhythm and your improvisation is a whole other thing. And sure. Rock Mononoff made the statement that Art Tatum is not only the greatest jazz pianist, he's the greatest pianist. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. You know what I mean? So you got this high respect coming from these guys. And Gersh, uh, uh, Gershwin would do these uh, soirees and do these concerts, man. And Stravinsky, Ravel, Shostakovich, all these guys would be in the crowd. It'd be a who's who of European classical uh, composers. So with my evolution della music, it's just my fleshing out uh, the classical melodies as if Miles Davis. I tried to do that record like Miles Davis kind of blue. Because Miles Davis and them, well, they would take Broadway tunes. Instead of Broadway tunes, I was taking some of the greatest melodies of the ages. Sure. Taking Moonlight Sonata, mm-hmm. you know, which has a vibe like Round About Midnight. Yeah. You know what I mean? So imagine Moonlight Sonata if Miles was playing it on the trumpet. <laughs> yeah, know, right. Boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-boo-
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> and then I was opening up the tunes for improvisations. I would get with the cats, the players, and find the best sections to blow over. And so in the Evolution Della Music, you see me fleshing out the classical vernacular, basically. Mm-hmm. Wow. Utilizing the jazz language. Yeah. <laughs> and when you play that stuff, man, it's just so deep, man. The Beethoven stuff is just deep. You play Mozart. You play Stravinsky. Well, we, you haven't heard this because we, we went further than what's on the record. Well, you hit them Stravinsky chords, man. Um, what is that uh, the thing on at the end of Firebird? Mm-hmm. The, la- the final movement of the Firebird, my favorite one. Oh yeah. Uh, we put, mm-hmm. we hit it like milestones. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. Man, the like green apples, man. It's so mild, man. It's so mild. You can bring so much to it, you know, by just, you know, being aware. So all I'm doing, basically, is I'm hearing what Ravel and them said. They said they're waiting for Americans just to realize what they got. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, so here's what I'm doing is, like, with that record, right, and with the music I'm doing now, it's very elegantly just recognizing America's place in the unfolding of this because... All the European class composers said looking at America helped them to take off their stodgy coat. You know, they had so many stodgy forms and stuff. Right. And they were trying to break out of them in some kind of meaningful way. And American jazz and these American tunes and American style. Not only that, it was American literature. Because along with, the, along with Ravel and them checking out the jazz, they were checking out um, Edgar Allan Poe, the sure. dark poet, you know, and some right. of the themes. Thoreau, you know, Dvorak was checking out Thoreau, Emerson, you know what I mean? Yeah. All these American poets, Langston Hughes. Exactly, You know what I mean? Right. So it was really America's art, too. And so when America realizes this appreciation, you know, you can see it because you can't take it lightly that, um, that jazz is a very complex music. It's a classical art form. Yeah. And it's also in the popular medium. That, that's, that's the key. Yeah. That's, this is what Ravel and them recognize. They said, this is... This is a popular music. You know, it's not like a... Like, sometimes you see jazz musicians now, and maybe they're not playing it in the popular tradition. It's like music right. theater, people sitting and saying bravo and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But jazz didn't come like that. You know, it came it came rough. That's why I'm looking at hip-hop. Yeah. You know, because hip-hop is a little rough around the edges. Yeah. You know, and everybody's taking a chance <laughs> when they get a chance to try to knock it down. But just let that little baby grow up a little bit. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you're right. right now. Well, I, I have something that you might appreciate. Uh, just about two hours ago, um, I record. Eddie and I are based here in Indianapolis, and we've got one of the one of the few full time symphonies in the country that are here. One of the you know, like a handful. And okay, uh, which one is that? Which one? The Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, because I'm going to be approaching all these symphony orchestras because I got a full score of the Black Mozart. Well, here's here that that would be very cool. But here's uh, just two hours ago, I I. I recorded the you know the rap artist Ice T, and uh, yeah. he was actually re- you mentioned Langston Hughes a minute ago, and uh, he's going to be reciting Langston Hughes you know poetry uh, while the symphony plays behind him, and it's going to be oh. really interesting. Yeah, we need go- to see that man. What it's, does that happen? It's it's a world premiere, and it's it's happening here, and it's on June. I think it's June eighteenth. June eighteenth is that Ice T or Ice Q? Ice T. Ice T. Right, okay. Does that sound that's co- cool. That's cool because you'll yeah. see, like, even if you go on YouTube right now, you'll see uh, and look up uh, Future Man and the Black Mozart Ensemble. Sure. There's some India 204 footage, but you'll see one of the hip-hop artists is reciting Maya Angelou's I Rise. Okay. 
and he's just laying it in there, man, because cool. he's got that rhythm of the streets. You know, he got the right. rhythm of the preacher in him. <laughs> yeah. What a wonderful and concept. I'm consciously doing that because I want, him to, I want them to understand that the rhythm and the rhyme of the streets is not that far from the rhythm rhyme of poetry or the rhythm and the rhyme of the pulpit. Right. The rhythm and rhyme right. of spoken word. And then as we study the rhythm and rhyme, we'll see that rhythm and rhyme has been used all the way going back to Shakespeare and the Iliad. Mm-hmm. It was all based on rhythm and rhyme because they would have cadences. You know, like a haiku has a cadence. Sure, exactly. right. All that stuff of the Iliad was cadence. And so if you take the hymns, right, we're going to Dvorak now. Look at the hymns and you take Amazing Grace. The common time in the hymn book is eight and six. So okay. if you look at something like Amazing Grace, everybody knows that. And count the syllables. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That's eight. Exactly. Right. Four, five, six, seven, eight. The second part is six. That saved a wretch like me. Right. One, two, three, four, five, six. The whole thing runs on that framework. Right, I right. Once was lost, but now I found, right? In all the hymn books, man, and, and like my mom and them, they know all these hymns, right? But they never knew it was metered like that. And so, <laughs> and they're all different. Eight and four, eight and six is common time, but you got sevens and fives. It's like fusion music. Yeah. And my mom and them are from a generation, they just know it. They don't know the theory behind it. Right. But when I started talking about it, because I was kind of a pest, but I was basically <laughs> doing Dvorak. Dvorak said, you got to pay attention to this music. This is your music. Yes. Yeah. He said, this is the music of your country. What music could you play? And if you were in another country somewhere around the world and you heard this music, it would stop you in your track. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. If, you heard a certain, uh, if you heard a certain spirit, and that's the spirit that I was recording um, this music in. Mm-hmm. And, um so Amazing Grace has that same, and it's called iambic pent- pentameter. Mm-hmm. Iambic pentameter. Pentameter, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Shakespeare, everybody's using Moby Dick. Right. What's his name? Orville, he used it. That's why it's got that, it's got that vibe to it. Right, right. And so with the hip-hop artists, you know what I mean? Todd's hitting the I-Rise, right? And he's hitting it like a preacher. Yep. And I'm just showing that connection between the spoken word. Mm-hmm. It goes all the way back to Shakespeare. And so here I am, right? I was talking about jazz, right? And I said, now people not paying attention to hip-hop. Hip-hop getting slapped on the back of the head because, you know, maybe they're a little vulgar. They don't even know how powerful what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But their, their spoken word is as powerful as the pulpit. Sure. It just depends on what they're spitting out. Sure. If they're, if they're spitting out calling women names and, you know, calling themselves names, well, then it, it only exists at a certain level. But there's no cap on the spoken word. That's right. what I'm saying. Right, right. Right? So that rhythm that they hit, man, that rhythm is so... Cl- it's like part of the next thing in a way. You know what I mean? And this is a very deep conversation, but to see this next thing is what I'm talking about. Is like when you get into like uh, me with my inventions, right? I invented the drumatar. Right, right. right. Drumatar, I created a whole new piano. Yeah, yeah. You know? I just invented a whole new piano. That's what I created the score of the Black Mozart of. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different piano than Mozart can use. Is that the Royale? On the journey of inventing that piano, we started looking at the tunings. I said, well, I don't want to be stuck tuning the A440 because I understand philosophically and theoretically, physics, mathematically, A440 is not where it's really supposed to be in the order of nature. Mm-hmm. And Mozart and these masters tuned down to A432. And so I wanted to be able to tune down to A432 because when A hits 42, A432, the frequency A432, all the other frequencies line up in a very meaningful matrix. Hmm, so that's when the note C then hits the note, the, the frequency 256. And 256 is very crucial uh-huh. because if you just do binary, 1, 2, 4, 8, right. 16, 32, mm-hmm. 
Right, right. That's just binary. And there it is right there. 256 goes to 512. 512 is double. And this, these are all computer languages. Sure. Right, yeah. right. That's right. your first half megabyte comes. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is the way the crystal quartz oscillates in your watch. It's not by chance that these frequencies work like that. So for us to arbitrarily change the tuning, I knew it didn't fit, and it wouldn't show you the rest of nature when it relates to those frequencies. You'd miss it if you were going by A440. Interesting. And A442 in Europe. There's no science. Behind it. So, that's, right? so, so, that's, so what I'm saying is this. When I was inventing the piano, we started getting these in-between pitches. We started tuning there, but we didn't stop there. We started getting the frequency of Planck's length. There was a sacred geometry guy that said, you need to look at the frequency of Planck's length as another common fundamental starting point. And Planck's length has to do with the frequency of hydrogen. Now we're starting at the beginning of the periodic table. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so we went there and got the, all the frequencies of the periodic table. Right. So now I can strum through the periodic table like a crazy xylophone. Man. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens is the pitch is falling in between. And here's the other profound thing that happens is the pitch relationships start introducing profound vibrato relationships. True. See, that's all tuned out of our music. Mm-hmm. So, but, but what I'm saying is this. This is fascinating because now I'm, I'm doing this because now I'm getting back to rap. In the rhythm of the spoken word, it's not only the rhythm. This is a secret. It's like if I was Bartok, I wouldn't even be saying that, you know, because Bartok didn't like to give out his secrets. Right? Right, right. Bartok <laughs> is broke, right? They offered him a job to teach composition, but he don't want to give his secrets out, so he, you know, he stays poor. But this is a secret right here. When you, when you take in-between pitches, you know what I mean, that aren't like, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, but when I'm talking, but when I'm talking, da, 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 right? If I hit those pitches like, ba, 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 they're really close in-between pitches, mm-hmm. and everybody does it when they talk. True. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah, 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 true. Da, 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 You know what I mean? It's not, exactly. do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, da, da. Right, exactly, right. And everybody does it. When you talk, you're going in-between. Yeah. It's natural, right? Right. So now check out rap. Anything that's got the spoken word really has a melodic content in there. You're right. You analyze it. You're right. It does. Snoop Dogg got a chromatic thing. Dun, da, da, dun, dun, da, 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 exactly. Da, 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 da. Right. You know what I mean? All of them have that. And, that's incredible. Indeterminate pitch in between. Very drum-like. All of them have that. Yeah, All of them got a little sing-song to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, this is a story about who, who Will Smith got that little sing-song. You That's know what I exactly mean? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? I moved out of Jordan to the neighborhood. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's very sing-songy. Once you understand it's not Do-Re-Mi. That's right. not Pavarotti sing-song. Mm-hmm. But it's another type of natural, and it's hitting something very primal. Interesting. You can listen to any rap song that's like that. That's very you know, cool. That's and, very and so, so, so they're really on to something there. Yeah. And uh, the rhythm is on to something. And I, I think that uh, basically now, like as I get into the black Mozart, I'm understanding. Okay, so evolution de la music is a stream using the jazz vernacular the same way Miles and them would play Hello, Dolly. Instead of playing Hello, Dolly, we're playing Moonlight Sonata. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right? And then opening that up that for solos. And when you do that, man, these, these classical cats are writing some heavy chords, man. It's, they're nice to solo over. It's super nice. It's yeah. right? But yeah. so now we're hitting it like Miles and them, though, with that, with that exquisite improvisation now. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I was trying to do. Do it just like Connor Blue. So Connor Blue 
the melodies and stuff are cool, but it's the solos that make that record. Right, right. And so if you hear Evolution uh, Della Music, man, it's the solos, man. It's the way Jeff and Rod is interpreting that Moonlight Sonata. Sure. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. That's what's up, man. So, so that's what we're doing. So now as I bring it into the full symphony, that's the part now as I move from the Black Mozart, you know, you, the Black Mozart Project is establishing this symphonic vision. Man, bum, bum, bum. But the Black Mozart is really the first half of a whole complete work where it's the Black Mozart and then the second part is the Secret of Kings. And in the Secret of Kings, you're going to see it all come together. Very cool. You know what I mean? Everything very, that I did very in neat. Evolution Della Music because... It's a fascinating story because, remember, you talked about Ravel, right? Right. And then we talked about uh, 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 Ravel was jazz where Dvorak was spiritual. Okay. But, man, if you listen to Ravel, like on Evolution Della Music, we do the first part, which is the piano sonata, piano trio. And he has a piano trio for violin and cello. Right. We did a, a, we did a piano trio trumpet and tenor sax uh-huh. you know what I mean yeah. Yeah. so where, what, the, what the violin was playing that's where Miles was or, yeah. or Rob Magaha who's a cat in town that can play like Miles I mean he just understands that spirit and then on the, the tenor tenor part uh, where the cello was Jeff was playing the tenor okay so now you hit that melody man You know what I mean? It's just yeah. so cool, man. So basically, when you hit Ravel, that's the sound of kind of blues. That's who Bill Evans and them was into yeah. Yeah. when they was getting into all that modal stuff. So instead of just playing kind of blue, we play Ravel like kind of blue, connecting the circle. There's a circle of history already right there. Sure. You know, where they were checking that out. And so that's a fascinating thing. And, and as we started now um, uh, multiplying that out to the different composers, because, you know, it's that, that idea started, uh, there was uh, Paul Bradley guy, a uh, cellist, who helped me uh, co-compose and orchestrate some of the Evolution D'Amour stuff, the ride of Osiris and all this. Yeah. And uh, he was doing this piano tree, and I said, Paul, man, let me hear that, man. That really sounds like Miles. I, I just, I could visualize us doing that with instrumentation. So we got together and we fleshed that out. And then from there, we went to the other composers. We did, uh, well, Stravinsky's not on the record, but we did Beethoven, we did Ravel, uh, I'm trying to think, Mozart, Mozart, okay. real joyful thing. Right. And um, what, what's really cool is uh, what I was going to get to with Ravel. <laughs> Ravel, <laughs> man, when we take the piano trio, if you listen to Ravel's piano trio for violin, piano, and cello. Okay. Man, listen to, the, listen to part two. Okay. The slow part. Uh, man, it has a bass line that's so gospel. I was like, man, this sounds like my grandmother's church right here. I know <laughs> Ravel is checking out gospel music. Yeah. I mean, I don't have to read no book, man. I'm saying his stuff sounds more spiritual than Dvorak. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the bass line is like boom, 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 boom. Man, that ain't nothing but the blues. Right. Man, that's some blues. That's some go down Moses blues, right? Every Tuesday morning, man. We go talk down about Ravel, Moses. And one of the guys reads French, been to France. So he opens up a book, man, and it's talking about Ravel and Gershwin hanging out. 
And they're going to a soiree party, yeah? You know, they would go to these parties and Gershwin's playing and Ravel is getting astounded by Gershwin's rhythm. He's just never seen no rhythm like that, right? And so when Ravel's coming to the party, right, before Ravel gets to the soiree, Ravel requests at the party, he requests a, uh, he requests a choir, a Harlem choir. Yeah. And an African dance troupe. No, oh, no, no, he requests a gospel choir. Okay. Ravel requests at the party a gospel choir. Amazing. I said, damn, there you go, right there. <laughs> <laughs> party today. <laughs> for a gospel choir, right? Yeah, but he's coming from yeah. France. He knows what he wants to hear. Sure. <laughs> he requests a gospel choir and an African dance troupe. Amazing. Oh, wow. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. this is deep, man, because it's like Stravinsky... And during that whole age of art, the modern artists, they were all into something called primitivism, which mm-hmm. was checking out indigenous African art. Sure. That was the source of Cubism and all the, you know, the, the edgy creativism of that time Correct. was this tribalism. You know, Stravinsky's right of spring is tribal, man. It's tribal. So he's hanging out with Picasso. Picasso's doing the same thing. He's got tribalism in his art. Yes, he does. Cubism is tribal masks and stuff. And uh, when you get this book, uh, um, Miles Davis' attorney gave me this two-volume set called Primitivism. That, that's what the movement was called. Mm-hmm. And so even the black artists here in Harlem, you got um, Jacob Lawrence, Romare Bearden, and all the Harlem Renaissance, man, they go over to France, right? And they said, Picasso, and then we'll send them back home. They said, go home and paint your people. That's what we're doing. <laughs> and, you know, and so the African Renaissance, they would, they would have discussions saying, man, well, Picasso and them are, are really painting blacker than we are. It's actually funny. That's but wild, man. You have, you have to hear it from a distance. So it's the Dvorak that's telling them how great these, this gospel music is. And and uh, when you see the documentary on Dvorak coming to America, Henry Burley said, we always knew the music was great, but we just thought it was for us in the church. Right, right. And it was Dvorak who, he said it was Dvorak instructed us to sing it on the stage. <laughs> okay, so it's all of this spirit. When I come to the subject of black Mozart, it's basically, I'm still in the same spirit as the Flectones, man. We're embracing all the music. Right, right. But here's the statement. Here's the key, man. And Charlie Parker was the genius of jazz that could have brought jazz uh, at, in a in a leap light year to where Bach and them were. Mm-hmm. So, uh, first I want to tell this story. Uh, a guy walks up to Charlie Parker's house. There's a guy who uh, who's alive now. His brother tells the story. He walks up to Bird's house. Bird answers the door in boxer shorts and has a clarinet in his hand. The right of spring is, or either the firebird is playing in the back. Okay. Bird invites him in. Bird is studying the score and improvising another part to Stravinsky's Firebird. Interesting. Now, don't you wish we had a tape of that? (laughs) My goodness. But here's what Charlie Parker made this statement. He said, jazz is a young music, and we are writing short stories, Mm. but we should be writing novels. Yeah. We should be writing novels. Now, that's probably even more true than he knew, because once you see that Mozart, Bach, and them were so close to being jazz musicians, they're basically the same thing. You know, they're jazz musicians because they're improvising. I'm just using jazz because it's a cliche word for improvisation right, uh, right. people. You know what I mean? But it's not, jazz is not really the word. Improvisation is the word. Exactly. Yes. And jazz is just another style of an improvisation art form. You know, you can improvise in the blues. You can improvise in ragged music. You can improvise in salsa music. Right. I mean, you can see that in salsa music because their big bands still fill up the dance floor. Mm-hmm. Yep. But improvisation is the word, and Bach, 
Mozart, Beethoven, all of these, they were extreme improvisers. The king would give Bach a melody, he improvised six of them right on the spot, simultaneously. <laughs> Amazing. That's, that's yeah. art, that's, that's ultra jazz, that you know, is, ultra right. improvisation. Beethoven comes to play for Mozart, and Mozart said, that sounds good, but it sounds studied, you know. When he said that, Beethoven, who was already a great improviser, started improvising through all the keys. And then that got Mozart's attention. Mozart turned around and said, this kid will give the ages something to remember. Hmm. The key is, improvisation was, the, was a lifeblood. Uh-huh. It was a lifeblood, and you know it's a lifeblood to jazz. So it's in jazz where that spirit, that classical, pure classical spirit, is coming up in jazz. And all the European composers are recognizing that. So much so, if you get this world new book, New World Symphonies, they said there was a jazz movement. You know, like Stravinsky tried to act like, whatever Stravinsky did, he tried to act like he started it. But he, it was, Debussy uh, was way before Stravinsky with the jazz sound. You know, Debussy, Scriabin, Shostakovich, Shostakovich made a jazz record. You know what I mean? He made, and you can hear what he's trying to do, but they just, they Russian, man. They don't have that jazz. Music, but they trying. <laughs> you know what I mean? The thing was that they were trying to get to this thing. Yeah, yeah. Like that Ravel said, we got it so natural over here, we don't even know what we got. Right. He said, wow. when you re- he, then Ravel made this statement. He said, when you recognize what you got, he's expecting the Americans to come up with an even newer art form. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, so I think that some of my my um, looking into the spoken word, right. looking into what's going on with rap, because what do you have in rap? You got improvisation. Exactly. People, people improvise right on the spot. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, when when they grow up and when they can learn music, to when they can spin their own music, like like I tell uh, rap artists and DJ, I said, imagine if James Brown was a DJ artist. Mm. Whose beats do you think he'd be spinning? Yeah. <laughs> in his own because there ain't nothing funkier in his own that's right <laughs> ain't nothing funkier than James Brown so he'd be spinning James Brown so I said this is like a uh, it's like a way to to assess the, the prime number yeah this is thinking like Michael Jordan and them where you're trying to take to that next level is when that rap artist understands the music that's coming out and you don't have to just you know what I mean to, to borrow other people's stuff yeah. right. it's nice to be able to remix and stuff yeah. but when it comes of age it's when they go in the studio and say man listen what I got listen how I'm cutting it yeah. if, you know it, what I mean so yeah. I'm just saying that in the spirit of uh, Leonard Bernstein Aaron Copeland who by the time they came on the scene they understood that jazz was an important uh, classical art form it was yeah. important to the world of classical music and so he was able to produce West Side Story which was a high, it was like high-level music, but it also connected to the common man. Right, right. And Copeland makes the statement when he went to study with Nadia Boulanger, the great uh, teacher of all these great composers. He said, Nadia Boulanger remarked to him one day, he said, she said, your rhythm is different than anyone here in Europe. Your rhythm. Yeah, and so that made, he said, Copeland said, wait a minute, you know, that, that gave him a unique something. And so when he got back, he started digging into his jazz roots more. So you hear them chords, you know, in the in, in uh, Appalachian, you hear those beautiful kind of jazz kind of sure. progressions. They're really noble jazz progressions and mm-hmm. stuff. And then he's also pulling out the message from Dvorak. It's not just the spirituals, it's the folk songs of America. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and people just naturally can gravitate to it. That's so, so these are the messages as I, I get to the Black Mozart. We're ingesting all of this. And so basically, I'll if I made a long story short, it'd be like, if I were to redo Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story, 
you know I got to have some hip hop in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? You're right. Exactly right. Think about it's true. It. It's yeah, true. you're because right. The jazz was the edgy mu- music at the time. Yep. But we done come a little bit further. We can really get the gang sound now. <laughs> you're right. It's so true. instead of Maria, <laughs> I just saw a girl named Maria. It's gonna be, be a, it's gonna be a beat like boom, boom, boom. Maria, Maria. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I saw a girl named Maria with some Carlos Santana vibe in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> You know, and you're going to have a little bit of that, you know, man, you know, you know, it's the, the hip hop has the same edge that at Leonard Bernstein's time he was getting from jazz. Yeah. See what I'm saying? So we have all of that, and I also have the spoken word and the rhythm and the rhyme that hip hop is. is the spoken word power of hip hop to bring West Side Story, and that's the attitude that I'm embracing the whole thing. That's with. You know what I mean? I'm just embracing the whole thing. And when I told you, like the secret of spoken word is indeterminate pitch, right? And everybody does it so natural, you don't even think about it. That's because, true. like, just like what I just said, everybody does it so natural. I just did a musical phrase, and right. everybody does it all the time. <laughs> that's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's always musical because Gee, if it wasn't, it'd be Schwarzenegger. Everybody does it all the time. And, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, 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 but speech has a lilt to it. It does, yeah. And it's all indeterminate in between pitch. And that is a secret, my friend. I gotta you know tell you, I, mean? I gotta tell you, Ada, if, of the forty episodes of Inside Music Cast that we've done, this has been, without a doubt, the most educational. Oh no doubt! Right, right, right. Because like when you tune drums, you don't always tune drums to do re mi. You just tune them to sound good with each other. That's right. Exactly. Sometimes they fall in between. Yeah. Right. And so basically, when I'm dealing with my piano, which I see the drum set and the piano related to each other. Right. The piano is like a sophisticated drum set. It's got a drumstick under every key. And so because it's got so many keys, you can assign a different pitch to each stick, each hammer. Mm -hmm. So you think of it more harmonically than rhythmically, per se. Right. But to me, it's a complex drum set. Sure. And when I'm approaching it, that's how I'm approaching it. And that's how the rhythm, the rhyme, the flow of the black Mozart came out. So much so that when I designed my piano, I literally designed a piano forte. Piano forte, that's the whole name of the piano. Yeah. Piano is a dynamic marking, meaning soft. Forte mm-hmm. is an Italian word, a dynamic marking, meaning loud. loud so the yep, piano uh-huh. literally means soft, loud. Right. So on my piano, I use soft and loud, and from soft to loud, I change the pitch. If I hit soft, I get one pitch. I hit a little bit harder, I get another pitch. Right. Right. A little right. bit harder, it switches pitch, and then I hit the very hardest, I get the fourth pitch. So on every one of my keys from soft to loud, I have four different pitches. That's and cool. There's a harmonic system there. And when I start pulsing rhythm and phrases out, whoa, the polyphony just starts jumping out. <laughs> it just starts, consciousness just starts leaping out, man. It's king to queen's level three going on. Man. <laughs> because I can choose notes left and right like you do on a traditional piano, but I, I, I can also dig into it and pop out these intervals like Har- Howard Levy was doing on, on his uh, blues harp. You know, he, he changed the angle of it and pop out these intervals you didn't know was there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have this, I call them like falsetto type intervals based off how hard I stroke the key. Yeah. And so that gives me a king to queen's level three approach to melody, harmony, and rhythm. Amazing. It's crazy, man. I didn't know it was going to work, man, but this music, I just <laughs> ran the tape recorder and boom, the whole black Mozart just leaped That's birth. That's man. very cool. <laughs> Hey, you know, I know you have uh, other interests outside or that are sort of coincide with your music. And, and one of them I know about is something, that, and I actually don't know too much about it, but it's uh, something you're doing uh, called the Star Chronicles Project. 
Yeah. How do you know about Star Chronicles? I'm, I'm, I do my homework. <laughs> yeah, that's really great, man, because Star Chronicles, this guy, Charlie Case from Atlanta. Right. And this is like the nerdy side, right? Uh, you know, like I'm into like just checking out what the numbers do. Like I just showed you uh, how one doubles the two, two doubles the four, four doubles the eight, eight doubles the 16, 16 doubles the 32, 32 doubles the 64, 64 doubles the 128, 128 doubles the 256, and there is your true middle C right there. Right. Which coincides with computer language, which coincides with botany and a whole lot of other things. But as long as we have A at 440, we might not be able to see it because A440 throws C way up to two, you know, maybe almost 260, you know? Right. So a lot of the order is thrown off, the inherent order of nature, and I say the universe. Because when you start looking at these numbers, you start getting golden ratio derivatives out of it. So I was looking at all these cool things, right? Now, what I'm doing, now I'm going to show you one more thing. If I go 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, I can add 6 and 1 together and get the, the, the root uh, gear number of 7. 6 and 1 right. and 7. Uh-huh. 16 doubles to 32, I add 3, 2 together and I get 5. Right? Uh-huh. So, so the line goes 1, 2, 4, 8. 80 being 16, which is 7. The next one's 32 being 5. And then when I get to 64, we're back to 1 again. 6 and 4 being 10, 1 and 0 being 1. We're back to 1 again, okay. and it's going to repeat that same cycle over and over and over. Interesting. When you break it down to one digit. Now, this is Pythagorean, right? Right. This is Pythagoras. Mm-hmm. You know, some people say it's numerology, but it comes from Pythagoras. Pythagoras is the one that, you know, showed us how to do this. You know, his, his learnings traveling through Egypt and all the pyramids and stuff. He learned all this real heavy, advanced mathematics. Okay, so what's cool about that is Bach and them were into this, right? Bach and them belonged to a, what they call a Pythagorean society. Mozart joined it later. All these heavy composers, man. And the whole society was dedicated to the study of Pythagorean philosophy, numbers, and thought. And everybody in the society had to bring something. You know, they would all have their portraits painted, and they had to bring something. And guess what Bach brought? His gift to the society was the art of the few. Okay. A perfect piece of music, and it says, uh, the secret of the art of the few is Pythagorean thought and philosophy. Because, you know, Bach would write a piece of music and wouldn't tell you how to start it. You know, you could play it forward, you could play it backwards. Some say it was just a perfect piece of music, wasn't even meant to be played. You know, you just, you know... (laughs) But the whole secret of it was Pythagorean thought. So I'm saying this leading up to Charlie Case, right? right. Charlie Case uh, wanted to orchestrate, or basically animate a piece of music that I did on a, a project called The Seamless Script. And mm-hmm. what I'm saying when I say The Seamless Script is I'm talking about, quote-unquote, irrational numbers, which are numbers that, quote-unquote, don't repeat. You know what I mean? Like fractional, right. like 1.618 or pi, which is 3.14159265, right? Right. Okay, so what I was suggesting, and see, I started talking to Charlie about it. When he said he wanted to animate uh, the seamless script, I started explaining to him what the seamless script was all about. Uh, The seamless script starts with an ohm, a drone, then you hear insects and stuff, and finally, you know, two-thirds of the way, you start hearing uh, horns and violins and stuff. And when they come in, I have them coming in on the three of pi. I'm looking at the uh, the number pi as a song line. Interesting. Not as a stream of irrational numbers, yeah. but as a melody line. And so I'm playing that melody line, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, 
associated with the numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And when you put them together, the pi number line yields a melody line. And so I'm explaining this to Charlie Case. So this, the animation that he's doing with the golden scripts is looking and letting us see the picture. You know what I mean? A picture that goes with this. You can experience, you can take a journey with it. You know, now you don't have to consciously know all of this that I'm doing, but as you listen to it, you start to get familiar with the melodies and stuff. Right. And then I can start to, you know, the interest, like a child who may hum that melody years later, once I show them the translator, the melody that they're humming can be translated into the number line. So I'll give you an example. I I have Chris Teeley playing some of my melodic lines, right? And he knew that some kind of way it related to that atomic table pie or something. And so he was playing, we were in the key of C, you know? And so I got got Chris to name the note. I said, Chris, we're in C. So if you play C, that's what? One. The next note is what? F. He said, what is that? He said, four. Next note is what? C again. Next note is what? G. That's five. And I said, one, four, one, five. I said, that, that, what you're doing is you're basically telling me pi. Right. By numbering your notes. Now, I didn't yeah. tell you that, but once I showed it to him, <laughs> Chris goes, whoa. <laughs> that means it's just writing itself. I was like, right, you got it, man. Wow. You know? <laughs> That's out there. So this is music that has a framework to it based on nature. And so, um, so Charlie, the animator, Charlie Case, and you can find him through um, StarChronicles.com. He got into it, man. He just really, he, man, he's designed his whole house off 1 to 1.618. <laughs> he redid his house, his yard, you know, and he started using uh, five ratio colors uh-huh. in the animation and stuff, man. He just really got into it. Could be, could be and the so new... he animated the whole piece. Yeah. And so as we go on, like now he just did this uh, change of worlds. <laughs> in a, um, uh, it, it's in a five ratio. It's in a golden ratio pitches. And, uh... And there's beautiful, different-sounding melodies coming off of them. And I'm trying to make the melody sound as natural as possible, but you can tell there's something kind of different about it. Sure. Yeah. And so that's what's happening. You know, Pi, I'm doing that equal tempo, but we're looking at numbers, and it's kind of nerdy-like. But, you know, I found out later on that Bach and them were doing the same thing. You know, that they, were, they were actually studying this stuff. That's amazing. That's very and cool. I used to always say, man, when you play these number lines, like when, I was, when I'm showing you how these numbers, when you break them down, they have a fundamental pattern that repeats over and over and over. That's like a Bach ostinato and stuff. And as the numbers keep growing, they're giving you more melody lines. Right. And, and when you play them, there's an order to it. You can hear this order, man. That's cool. You can cool. really hear this order. And I said, man, it sounds perfect like Bach. Huh. I had no idea that Bach and them were like checking out Pythagorean thought, though. So anyway... You know, I'm just, you know, through these different episodes, you see me um, unfurling the consciousness of music as it speaks and reveals itself. It's just revealing itself. And so, you know, by the time we get to the Black Mozart Ensemble, it, they're literally playing this composition that came off my piano that I created. That's cool. And I'll confess, I knew about the Star Chronicles uh, because of uh, a friend of mine, Kim Riley, who's involved with that. Sweet, yeah, man. I, I advise people to really check that out. You know. Oh man, <laughs> hey, if you, you've you've taken us on an incredible trip, yeah. man. Yeah, you, man you've taken us journey, from, man. from uh, oh, I love it, I love it, and and I I, I really uh, I think me and Rick both know that people are going to be listening to this uh, this interview over and over because you've touched everything from from the classical to the to uh, 
to not only uh, Howard, but it's all connectivity into the voice, yeah, into the word yeah. and all that. And it brings us in really in full circle as to where you guys are right now. I mean, this interview really, uh, our discussion helps me an awful lot understand what you guys are all about, you know? Yeah, it's really something, man, because everybody's so creative. You yeah. know, Baylor's doing work with, I think, the Sparrow Quartet with um, Abigail Washburn. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's great. Mm-hmm. Player and, stuff. Mm-hmm. and, you know, Baylor's also got a project where uh, he's got a film where he went to trace the roots of the uh, banjo in Africa. Really? You know, right. And then, yeah. Yeah, it's called cool. Throw Down Your Heart, and it's already won some film awards. Oh, look at that. Throw Down Your Heart. Listen out for that. Throw Down Your Heart. Victor is, uh, he's got a new record called Palmistry. Right. I've heard that. <laughs> that that's great. That's me. You know what I mean? Well, so, you know, Vic's, you know, he's doing stuff. You know, he's out there with the Victor Wooten Band. He's doing his base camps and stuff. Jeff Coffin, I just finished a record uh, earlier part of this year with Jeff while I was playing acoustic drums. It's called Mutopia. So check that out, jeffcoffin.com, victorswooten.com, yeah. and you can also find Vic on the Bass Vault. You know, Wonderful. Bass Vault. He's on there. You can actually talk to him on there if you, if you <laughs> sign up for that. That's cool. Uh, Bela, uh, yeah, definitely check out the movie Throw Down Your Heart, and the Flecktones uh, are finishing a Christmas album. One that's right. Well, you know that's already going to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have jingle bells in seven. <laughs> you, know, you know that's just going to be wrong. So I- I'll give you a hint, man. Tubin throat singers, man, singing kind of Christmas carol stuff. Oh, you know, is with that black tone? Oh, like uh, you guys worked with Congo uh, Roll once, right? Well, we worked with some of Congo Roll's proteges. Okay, that's called uh, a lash. Yeah, from a tuba. Okay. Right? And man, it's just this is gonna be the coolest Christmas album you <laughs> well, ever we, heard. We if look you need something for to Christmas, you gonna have something. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gonna be the same jingle bells. That's there awesome. you go. That's awesome. You know, right? And it's not gonna be the same twelve days of Christmas. <laughs> I'll give you the I'll give you a hint. Twelve days of Christmas, you're gonna hear twelve different keys at twelve different times. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't think we'd expect anything and less. Be some, surpri- some surprises from Edgar Meyer. Some surprises from Andy. Uh, uh, the mandolin player. Um, there's, there's some. There's, there's gonna be some, some surprises. So That's good. get ready for Christmas, right? Awesome. It's just good. gonna be totally. <laughs> outside of the Christmas box. That's great. <laughs> you can't even wrap it because it's out of the box. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for spending time with me and Rick. And uh, I tell you, this has been such a treat, you know, so. Uh, well, well, hey, I just want to tell everybody if they want to follow what I'm doing, you know, I'm, like my grandparents said, man, you right now, you, you're talking long hair music, man. I'm, I'm writing what my grandparents and them would call long hair music. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm just like Leonard Bernstein. You're going to be able to bop your head to it. You're going to be able to tap your foot. You're going to be able to rhyme to the hip-hop. There you, you go. Hear the story to the hip-hop, just like the Iliad. <laughs> you can stay tuned if you stay tuned through uh, myspace.com forward slash future man music. Right. And myspace.com forward slash future man music. Or if you even Google, we put up a lot of uh, tour diaries when we're out on the road with filming. Mm-hmm. So you can just Google um, or YouTube, you know, future man and the black most on Sure. See a whole bunch of YouTube. It's a, it's a beautiful tour diary up there now from Florida. Um, we met these young kids and stuff. So stay tuned. We're involving a lot of young people. Um, my concert master is a violinist that I met, man, while he was living in a tent. It's like the universe just started bringing them to me, man. I was sitting <laughs> at a coffee shop. I said, look, I got this crazy music for my piano. I'm ready to hear how it sits on, the, on a real violin. Does anybody know a violin player? Right? <laughs> that case was sitting one person away from me, and Kyle Whalem, who's the son of Kirk Whalem, yeah. Uh, saxophonist, yeah, yeah, who, who, who's Zach's friend, right? Yeah, and this kid plays violin. And I'm going, 
Okay, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to ask him, are you any good, right? And I can't figure out how to ask it. <laughs> Even if I could, I knew it don't matter. So I said, man, when can we get together? So Zach says, okay, well, I said, let's get together later. He says, okay, that's cool, but I live in a tent. There's only one thing. I, I'm living in a tent. Is that a problem? <laughs> <laughs> so I started liking this guy already, man. I said, man, in the back of my mind, I said, what is this guy to play? I said, okay, well, we going to the tent, man. I said, one thing, I just got to plug up my camera because I got to tape you. I want to hear how you sound. Man, that dude's sight read some of my hard music, and he's the concert master of the Black Mozart Ensemble right now. Wow. You can look up concert master Zach Casebolt. He's like a lightning bolt. Zach Casebolt, he's speaking out there about our recent tour to India. And so you get a chance to meet these people. And then from there, I met Lindsay Pruitt on violin, and she just killed my music, man. She plays like she's a sword fighting. And when you uh, learn about the Black Mozart story, and I'll just make a really long story, really short. Here is a guy who influenced Mozart. He is the pattern for the violin concerto down to this day, all the way down through Beethoven. He was the pattern. He was a virtuoso only equal later by Paganini 50 years later. Right? So he's like, when you hear his music, it's like a cross between Mozart and Paganini. And this is a guy where Mozart was living in Paris in poverty in order to have his works played by an orchestra that he was leading. So he was not only a virtuoso violinist, he was the first major concert maestro. The way we see co- classical directors today, yeah, yeah, he's the blueprint. Because why? Because before his time, the king would fund all the, uh, would fund all the orchestras. Like when you see Amadeus, they're always begging to the king to let him do something, right? Because the king is funding everything. And if the king goes to sleep, your, play, your thing is over. During <laughs> <laughs> so the black Mozart, who's really a mixed-race guy, born of an African mother and a plantation owner in the New World that goes to France to live. This is very significant because what I'm saying is here is a pivotal guy in the history of music that's been overlooked because of race. We find out because Napoleon came into power and reinstituted the slave code. And when he did that, he brought back slavery. And so he had to ban St. George's name. He had to ban his whole image. He couldn't let you see that and bring slavery back in anybody that great. So that's why to this day, we barely know his music. Some of his music was burnt. But here is the guy, the first major maestro. The reason he's the first major maestro is because the masonry was a a thing that all the musicians belonged to because all the forward-thinking men, it was like a guild that loved music. Like the clarinet was called the Masonic instrument. Mm -hmm. So it was a guild of forward-thinking men and these forward-thinking men came up with the patron system that we use to this very day. You get wealthy people, you know, well-to-do people, to pay for subscription concerts. With that, they took it out from underneath the funding of the king and were able to establish these glorious orchestras. Huh. Amazing. So Interesting. So this Black Mozart was the leader of what they called the Olympic Orchestra, which was huge. So Mozart and them, to play their music, that was the place you had your music played. Well, guess who the maestro was? The Black Mozart, Joseph Ballone de St. George, right? So for people to find out more about him, you can go to lemozartnoir.com, L-E-M-O-Z-A-R-T-N as a Nancy, O-I-R.com, and you'll see this fascinating story. But you have to realize, as much as we know about Mozart, he was heavily influenced by this, and this guy was like Miles Davis. Miles was creative, like some new forms of music, right? Well, St. George was instrumental in new forms of classical music, one being the string quartet itself, which was new in France, was a new art form, and the symphony concertante, which had, instead of just one soloist, 
they had groups of soloists, two, three, four, up to nine soloists. Now, where do we see that again? Because that dies. That spirit dies in classical music, and it comes up again in jazz in New Orleans. Right. You had a nine solos playing together, like Dixieland. Mm-hmm. Everyone complimenting each other. It's very significant. So I'm saying that this project that I'm doing is dedicated to this, this cat. First of all, he dressed like me. When I saw him, I was like, well, who is this brother wearing my hat, wearing my style, my clothes? Like, I need, what's up, man? But I said, well, he did come before me, so no problem, right? But I started learning about his story, and it was like, whoa, he really was a future man. He really was, because what was he up against? Well, here's what we learned. Because he's mixed race, we start to see the climate of the times. And once we go outside of the ballrooms of Mozart, we see that slavery is at its height. It's the height of the slave trade. It's the same time Toussaint and them are having their revolutions. William Wilberforce is arguing with all of Britain to abolish the slave trade. So the uh, abolitionist movement was controversial and dangerous to be part of. So St. George would be going to England in secret. This is all going on during classical music, the time of Mozart and everything. Yeah. So this is a story that has yet to be fully told. It's beautiful because here's the key. The Black Mozart, for me, project started maybe at least five years ago, five or six years ago, with a conversation with my choreographer, Sanjay Mayo, and she said she wanted to write a piece about America because she said after 9-1-1, America has gotten very interesting, you know, in the world scene. You know, America's kind of, maybe, 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 you know, people feel like we're bullying our way in the world, like Rome. You know, we got a little Rome attitude. Yeah. My way or the highway. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. You know, some people feel like that, you know, and maybe it doesn't look like, as good as it could be. But anyway, America is interesting, right? And even up to the day, you got a woman and, a, and a, a black person running. You know, I tip my hat to both of them. Right. People telling Hillary to drop out. I said, lady, if you, you can run as long as you want to run because she's making history. Right. People right. have to remember, ain't no woman got this far. So if she wants to run to the very end, man, respect her for that. You, you know, if she doesn't win and then she finally tips her hat to Obama, she's taking it farther for the next woman. You're right, exactly. You know, that's history we're looking at. Yep. Whether or not they win, they're both laying down some history. So America's very interesting. So the story of the black Mozart, many years later after my conversation with Sanjay Mayo, I felt like I had the American piece. The piece of the black Mozart is really could be called the American because he was called the American. Why? Because he's from the New World. He was born, his mother was a slave, born in Guadalupe. He's from the New World, transplanted America. So here's the key. The whole important key to this in relationship to Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, this American cat innovating two new art forms, pushing the violin further than it's ever been pushed, is this is American guy. Yeah. Out of all of them guys, Beethoven, Haydn, this is the one American, not until Copeland do we have American on that European scene fully respected. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not until Copeland coming after the message of Dvorak do we have the American arriving on the classical scene. But we see at the very early stages an American spirit in there mm-hmm. that was influencing everybody. He was flipping everybody on their side, man. Right, right. Mozart and them didn't, you know what I mean? Mozart didn't even talk about them. You know what I mean? That's unusual because <laughs> Mozart mm-hmm. talked about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he did mention St. George. Why? Because they're so close. They're so close and Mozart is actually borrowing St. George phrases. He's literally taking note for note St. George phrases. Interesting. And you'll see this guy Gabriel Bonat uh, explain that. But it's not just Mozart. You got Beethoven in them. Why? Because St. George became the, the, the blueprint for the violin concerto. So I'm trying to make a long story short. Here you have this, is, this story that I'm working on is called The American. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's called the Black Mozart because that has a little bit of edge to it because it was the height of the slave trade. But at the same time, he was called the American. Interesting. And this guy embodied what it meant to be all the great American qualities, to rise up above your station, you know, to be denied but to rise up. You know what I mean? I rise. That's why I got Todd. He's saying I rise by man, my Angela. Well, that's what he's doing. I rise. Does my confidence upset you? You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm, I walk like mm-hmm. I got oil wells pumping in my living room. You know what I mean? That's what he's saying about <laughs> He's not going to be denied. Right. So he is the greatest swordsman of Europe. You know what I mean? This is an exciting story. He's a, he's a marksman. He's a dancer. He's tied one hand behind his back and swam the, the, uh, the river. I forget which one, the English Channel. One of them rivers. Crazy, man. Crazy. An overachiever. You know, mm-hmm. and we hardly know anything about him in classical music. Interesting. You know, so yeah. anyway, that's a fascinating thing. But again, America can be proud, but he's unique because Africa can be equally proud and France can be equally proud because he became a Frenchman, but he's from the New World. He's the American, mm-hmm. but he's also his mom was an African slave. And they said he's so talented. He's like the return of the African M. Hotep, who was a legendary father of medicine and father of a whole lot of the art. It says St. George is like the return of M. Hotel. That's, man, this guy, whoo. And I said, brother, if you want to dress like me, that's all right. <laughs> no, you know, really, I really, I mean, I, I found out that, you know, he was before me, but I said, now that's a future man right there. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> so, so keep your ears open about the Black Mozart because I'm yeah. researching. You'll probably hear me doing lectures about it, but all this music dedicated. And as we go on, you'll hear me talking about the Secret of Kings as the story continues. That's very cool. So, yeah, yeah. so shout out to everybody out there on your station. I look forward. I hope I didn't talk too long. Hey, man, it was I'm, a I'm treat. I'm really excited about this. You All know? right. We'll keep in touch, man. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a great interview. Okay, buddy. Take care, man. Special thanks to Future Man for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside Music Cast.